Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfell. We continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan. So turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, verse 26, to chapter 7, verse 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God's Prophet. There came a time when Moses stepped out from his faltering steps of unbelief. At the beginning of Exodus 7, it has a distinct feeling that you know, Moses is a different man. It's hard to put one's finger on the precise moment where everything seemed to change. I mean, perhaps the change came when Moses stopped being on the defensive and then he went on the offensive. But perhaps the change also came in that last encounter with God. Finally, he's backed into a quarter. The issue of his reluctance is finally placed into the light of God's analysis. Moses is placed into a situation where all of his objections have been definitively answered, and the only objection left is simply to say, no matter what, I won't do what you say. Moses isn't prepared to take that final step of disobedience. No matter all his failings, he does fear God. And all that was required of Moses was to function in a way in which he would follow God's lead. He doesn't have to be clever or inventive or come up with a brilliant strategy. All he has to do is be a prophet. You know, in many ways, Moses' objection mirrored that of what would happen later in the case of Jeremiah. So God calls Jeremiah to be his prophet at a crucial time in Israel's history. And furthermore, what Jeremiah will be called to say is going to create considerable hardship for him. And so after the call of God comes Jeremiah's response. And here I'm reading Jeremiah 1, 6 to 7. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And that's it. Just say what God tells you to say. No more is required. So we return now to this last section of Exodus chapter 6, and that's in verses 28 to 30. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? You know, if you use the NIV translation, You'll notice that the translation there says, I speak with faltering lips rather than uncircumcised lips. A literal translation has Moses claiming that his lips are uncircumcised. That's interesting. You know, circumcision came from God's covenant with Abraham. All males were supposed to be circumcised to mark them as holy unto the Lord. And we also saw that in the past, Moses hadn't circumcised his own son. That was an offense to God, and after Moses was severely dealt with, he did comply. But now Moses said, the problem lies with me. My lips have not been holy to God. It's not just that I'm slow of speech. It's not just that I'm not a good public speaker. It's that my lips aren't holy. And with that, God repeats what he said earlier, but he makes something more explicit. So Exodus 7, 1 to 2, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So notice the first promise. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Of course, that doesn't mean that Pharaoh now thinks that Moses is a God, but it does mean that that Pharaoh would not doubt that when Moses spoke, 
He was speaking the very words that God had told him to speak. And this idea that God chooses spokesmen to speak on his behalf, that's at the heart of the Christian faith. The most holy faith is an authoritative faith. Years ago, I had a Bible school teacher who lamented that that the church was filled with endless dialogue, he said, the sharing of a multitude of different perspectives, and all of that leads us with a distinct lack of unity. Everyone did and said what was right in his or her own eyes. You know, my teacher said, there ought to be a time when all discussion ends. The discussion is welcome, but it has to end somewhere, and it ends when the definitive word is spoken. You know, when that's done, mouths are stopped. When that's done, all we're left to do now is just worship. Let me say it again. Christianity is an authoritative religion. We believe that God has spoken. You know, consider how the book of Hebrews opens up. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is, God spoke. God has definitively spoken. And when he spoke, he did choose the vessel through whom he would speak. The Old Testament comes to us not by the will of people who wanted to exercise influence, but rather the Old Testament comes to us because God chose his prophets who had no choice but to speak. Listen to Jeremiah's experience. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. (laughs) You know, when we come to the New Testament, in which, as Hebrews reminds us, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, well, we need to consider how the New Testament did come to us. Jesus wrote none of the New Testament. Rather, he entrusted that writing to the apostles he had chosen, as well as those prophets who wrote under the leadership of the apostles, and they wrote in direct conformity to Jesus himself. They said what Jesus wanted them to say. Now, we can say, along with Pharaoh, that the Bible has become as God to us. Now, if you want to quote me when I say that, please don't misquote me. I'm not saying that the Bible is God any more than Pharaoh would have said that Moses was a God, but Pharaoh believed that Moses was a genuine prophet of God. Therefore, when Moses spoke, he was speaking the very words of God without adding or subtracting from anything that God had told him to say. That's what the Bible is. It's not God, but it is as God to us. For when the Bible speaks, it says what God says without adding one slight stroke of the pen or without subtracting one stroke of the pen. To take issue with the Bible is the same as taking issue with God. And that is Moses, who will write five books of the Bible, speaks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will know it's God speaking. And that's a transformation from a man who said, my lips are uncircumcised. Well, yeah, they were uncircumcised. But like Isaiah, who complained that he was a man of unclean lips, God is able to transform faltering, unclean, and unworthy lips to be his instrument of speaking truth into this world. And as Pharaoh listened to Moses, he knew he was listening to the words of God. And I have to stop and consider this. Pharaoh's God's enemy, and yet he, even he, recognizes that basic truth. You know, in our day, we have people, even within the church, I mean, some of them, uh, they hold a view of the Bible as a book filled with human opinions and errors and contradictions and viewpoints that reflect an ancient culture that must not apply to today. And Pharaoh, the pagan king, knew more about God's prophets than some churchgoers know today. 
Now, the next phrase is telling. Your brother Aaron will be your prophet. And in many ways, those words reinforce what's meant by the word prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece. Pharaoh was never to doubt that on those occasions when Aaron spoke, he is simply a mouthpiece for Moses. Okay, Exodus 7, 3 to 6. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, those words sound very familiar to Isaiah's experience. You might remember that Isaiah, unlike Moses and Jeremiah, well, he didn't object to being called a prophet. Indeed, he said, here am I, Lord, send me. But after that, Isaiah was told the kind of ministry that he would have. Now, he wouldn't be wildly successful like, you know, maybe like John the Baptist, as people from all over Jerusalem were coming to to hear him preach and repent of their sins and be baptized under repentance. That may have been the experience of John, but that wouldn't be the experience of Isaiah. Indeed, right after Isaiah had, you know, willingly stepped forward and indicated his obedience to God's assignment, you know, we hear God's response, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That is, Isaiah was to prophesy God's word until the majority of Israel turned against him and paid no attention to what he said. Some of you might remember that Jesus himself quoted this very passage from Isaiah when he answered as to why he spoke to the crowds in parables. See, Jesus knew that many in the crowd would cheer him as he did his miracles. But when the opposition grew fierce, they would turn from him. And so he said, he spoke to them in parables so that they would get a dull heart, just like they did in Isaiah's time. Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. Once you sign up, All the newest from Dr. John and Phil will be one click away. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail. been talking about something that, you know, some theologians call the strange work of God. God sends prophecies to certain wicked people, you know, knowing full well that when they hear those prophecies, it won't bring them to the point of repentance. Rather, the more they hear, the more incapable they will be of repentance or faith and obedience. Moses the prophet had been sent to make Pharaoh a hardened rebel against God so that 
when the time comes, God would righteously judge him and humiliate him and make him a byword of what becomes of those who resist the purposes of God. That's called God's strange or his peculiar work. But lest our minds be taken up in poor Pharaoh, listen to the wider good. After Pharaoh will not listen, says God, he will multiply his wonders in Egypt. All of Egypt is going to become aware of the glory of God. So does that trouble you? Are you perplexed that Pharaoh is hardened and in consequence, Egypt is filled with the glory of God? Would you rather have Pharaoh compliant and Egypt be devoid of the glory of God? Notice the words of verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That is, all Egypt is going to know how great is the power of Yahweh. And might I add, all Israel would know it as well. And from the perspective of the Bible, there is no greater good than that the earth should be filled with the glory of God. If God, like in the time when Samuel was a boy, hid his presence from Israel, so that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. If God hides his presence, then the earth withers. But he will not hide his presence forever. And clearly Moses and Aaron have access to go to Pharaoh, what would become now the second time. You know, I've said, at least in my opinion, this would have been possible as Pharaoh would by now, you know, looking for a way not to make a martyr of Moses, but to make him a discredited leader. So we come to Exodus 7, 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, we notice that, you know, Pharaoh demands a miracle. And apparently Moses was not yet, you know, as God to Pharaoh. As far as Pharaoh was concerned at this point, Moses might be an imposter, or he might be a prophet of a minor slave god. But he begins by putting him to the test. You know, writing to the Corinthian Christians, Paul acknowledges that what constitutes proof well, that varies from culture to culture. Jews, he said, demand signs, and Greeks demand wisdom, that is, philosophical wisdom. And Pharaoh, well, it would seem he sided more with the Jews that Paul had mentioned in his time. Give me a sign, he says. And Moses then, in this case, has Aaron throw down his staff. And when Moses appeared before the elders of Israel, he then had his staff cast down. And lest we think that Moses' staff is magical, we see that, you know, that God can do it with anyone's staff. Well, at any rate, the magicians do the same, and that has led to a great deal of discussion. Indeed, our passage says that every single one of them threw down his staff, and it became a snake. It seems here that the mark of a magician is that he was able to do things like these, and, well, that's led to some discussion. How is it that every single magician could do what Moses did? And there are those who argue that this was done in the same way that a a modern magician might do it, you know, sort of sleight of hand you know, a form of misdirection, some form of trickery. They think this must be the case because, you know, when Aaron's staff of his snakes swallowed their snakes, well, they made no attempt to duplicate that. I mean, you might perform a trick with the proper props to substitute, you know, a stick for a snake, but to get a snake to swallow another snake, well, that's not an illusion that people can do. Now, while it is certainly possible 
that the magicians were mere illusionists, it might also be possible that they weren't. You know, Moses, who describes this event for us, says that they were able to do it through their secret arts. Now, you know, we can't say whether those secret arts, you know, are something like, you know, a modern day, you know, school for illusionists, or whether these men were actually capable of doing dark arts. But, but in my mind, these men are no mere illusionists. And I say that because, you know, when Moses turned the water of the Nile to blood, the magicians were able to do the same things. And then in the second plague, the producing of a plague of frogs, again, the magicians were able to reproduce that. And then the third plague, the plague of gnats, they couldn't do that. So one might argue that there may have been, you know, the trick of an illusionist to get, you know, water to turn into blood and to produce frogs in the the way that a modern day magician might pull, you know, a rabbit out of a hat. But why wouldn't it have been even easier to suddenly produce gnats? Seems like an easy trick, especially since you can produce frogs. Why can't you do the third plague? Well, I think the answer to that is that there is among the magicians a combination of trickery and the demonic. Indeed, we might wonder what Moses actually believed about these secret arts. I mean, after all, he himself had been trained in the best schools of Egypt. Would Moses have been able to point out the illusion, or did he believe this came from, you know, the power of the Egyptian gods? Well, of course, in this text, Moses doesn't tell us, but, you know, I've wondered, you know, whether Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3 provides some insight. So let me read that passage. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, look, Moses doesn't tell us what kind of signs and wonders that the false prophet is able to do. But the language, sign and wonder, is the language that frequently comes up in the writings of Moses. I mean, go back to our chapter here in Exodus 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Or notice in Exodus 7, 3, God speaks specifically about his signs. And that in contrast to the signs, you know, that might have pervaded Egypt through their magicians and wise men. Go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. There we meet a man named Simon the Sorcerer. Verse 11 says that for a long time, he had amazed people with his magic. Or we might go to Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they're on the island of Malta. There they come upon a Jewish false prophet. He's also called a magician. You know, as such, he's become, you know, the chief counsel to the Roman proconsul on the island. Well, I mention all these incidents to make a point. Either history is filled with kings who were regularly taken in by illusionists, and that, of course, you know, in some cases would be true, but I'm going to argue that in other cases, is it not possible that the demonic or the gods of this world are able to do their own signs and wonders. And if I'm right about that, that the magicians and the wise men of Egypt were able to do signs and wonders through demonic power, well, then it seems to me that at at this juncture, where Pharaoh believes in the gods and the goddesses of Egypt, that they're able to do miracles, and that when asking Moses for a miracle, he's only asking to size up just how powerful is Moses' God. Show me how much power you got, he asks. 
And to that, Aaron throws down his staff. It becomes a snake. And in our study of Exodus, I've already made the point that the snake, the serpent, that's a symbol that adorned the crown of the ancient Egyptian kings. So that symbol spoke of the authority of the gods. You know, that authority is given to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh serves as the protector of Egypt. So when Aaron's rod becomes a snake, we're immediately now in the realm that Pharaoh understands. This is the realm of spiritual power and authority. And if Pharaoh's advisors had any authority from the gods, you'd think, at the very least, they'd have the same authority as the authority of the god of the Hebrew slaves. So every single one of them steps forward and without one exception shows that sign is elementary. We can do that thing too. So why then would God begin with such an elementary sign? And the answer is we're going to see has everything to do with what God is up to. The signs are gonna grow and grow until at one moment they completely engulf all of Egypt. God is not going to defeat Egypt in one sudden stroke. He's going to, over and over again, start small and gradually harden Pharaoh's heart until his heart is like a stone. Then God steps forward and ultimately crushes him. But for now, well, it's enough that Aaron's snake swallows up the snakes of every single one of Pharaoh's magicians. That will do for now. If the snake is an Egyptian sign of authority, Pharaoh's going to know that the authority of the Hebrew prophet is greater than his prophet's. And his heart is hardened, but the hardened heart will not remove the prophet of God. God is about to speak, and Pharaoh is unwillingly going to listen to him. Thanks so much, John. Let me just ask you to to clarify something for us or review something for us. What do you mean when you say the Bible is as God to us? And let me thank you, Ben, because I think I want to say that one more time because I can just hear some people uh, criticizing me because of this. So let me say it. I'm not saying that the Bible is God. Let me say it again. I did not say the Bible is God. But if it's God's word, it wouldn't matter if we were standing right before God and he told us something or I'm having my morning devotions and reading it in the book. It's the same doesn't matter if it's written down or spoken directly. So God's word is the same as God speaking to us. So in that sense, God's word is as God to us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. He is faithful, and his people reflect his faithfulness. In this month of Thanksgiving, we invite your financial support. Your consistent generosity, first-time donation, or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your heart and home be filled with joy this Thanksgiving. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. 
For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ Scripture calendar, or to offer a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.